Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Hi, everyone. Welcome. I'm your moderator tonight, Dr. Carlo Polino from Philadelphia. I work at Salus University, the Pennsylvania College of Optometry. I'm an assistant professor and I'm in the retina service and the emergency service at our eye institute. I have the wonderful pleasure to be speaking with two of my close friends, uh, Dr. Mo Raffetieri and Dr. Carolyn Major. Such a pleasure to be here. I'm Dr. Carolyn Major. I'm an associate professor and the director of residency programs at the Oklahoma College of Optometry. Thank you, Carolyn. Mo? It's also a pleasure to be here with my buddies and presenting this. I'm Mohammed Rafitari. I'm an optometrist in practice at the Charles Retina Institute. Thank you both. Well, thank you, Carolyn. As you know, uh, about 9% of the worldwide population has AMD, about 200 million people globally. And as this disease will progress in the next few years, 10, 20 years, decades, uh, we're going to have an increase. So what we'll do, um, and maybe Carolyn, you can start us off. Let's start with a case. Obviously, uh, we have different stages of macular degeneration, but Carolyn, if you had somebody come in and you diagnosed, let's say early AMD, would you mind telling us what you might do for that patient in the sense of uh, testing, education, and so forth? Sure, of course. Um, in terms of my examination, um, with regards to early AMD, I may consider getting an OCT. Certainly once I hit the intermediate stage non-exudative AMD, I'm most definitely gonna get OCT imaging. But I think also color fundus photography is really important to help document where that patient is and how they may progress over time. And uh, I always combo color fundus photography pretty much every time in AMD patients with fundus autofluorescence imaging as well, just to get a better sense of drusen, detect early geographic atrophy, et cetera. And in terms of management of patients like that, I think the most important thing to discuss is that if they're smoking, counsel them to stop smoking because we know that's the most important and well-evidenced modifiable risk factor for macular degeneration. But also having a discussion with them about um, you know, changes in diet that they could make to you know, uh, prevent the progression or to more advanced stages of macular degeneration. So reducing fat intake, increasing the intake of fresh fruits and vegetables, especially like leafy green type of vegetables, um, eating heart healthy nuts and oily fish about two times a week uh, would be beneficial. I typically do not recommend um, ARIDS 2 supplements until we hit the intermediate non-exudative stage. And certainly um, ampsular grid monitoring, I would also recommend in early stage macular degeneration. Yeah, thanks, Carolyn. How about Mo? Anything you want to add to what Carolyn had just said? Well, I would. What I would add, I put a lot of emphasis in diagnosis of uh, macular degeneration and follow-up on OCT, particularly because there were a lot of biomarkers on OCT. And when we talk about OCT, colleagues have to realize we are not talking about the analytics and the color maps. We're talking about morphologic examination cross-sectional, high-resolution examination, looking at the retinal pigment epithelium, not just in the dead center, the one scan of the macula, go up and down, 
when you take a number of rasters, look at each one of those, look for the telltale signs, you know. And the one thing I do absolutely agree with Carolyn is not to start people on an arid stool right off the bat when you have somebody with a couple of drusen, you know, especially a younger patient population, follow the ARIDS, you know, recommendation of intermediate patients or a patient who's converted already in the fellow eye at any stage, but don't start people just because you're worried about macular degeneration. Pay attention to what's evidence-based and what's the protocols are, basically. Uh, Carolyn, you brought this up earlier, and I thought it was an important point. So if you have the early stage and you're watching that patient closely, and then you feel they've gone to the uh, intermediate stage, I know you said this earlier, but is there anything else you, you might do when you see this progression, let's say in a rather short amount of time? Uh, anything else, you know, other than what you mentioned? Certainly, um, from an examination standpoint, an imaging standpoint, um, once a patient crosses the threshold for me to intermediate stage AMD, uh, and just to make clear what that is, would be like at least one large size drusen, 125 microns, uh, extensive intermediate size drusen or non-central geographic atrophy. Um, that's when I'm gonna start recommending AREDS2 supplementation in addition to um, those dietary and um, you know uh, lifestyle modifications um, that we would have discussed already with uh, patients that have early stage macular degeneration. Um, but in terms of imaging, uh, that's I'm definitely going to get OCT. I'm going to get OCT and geography in hopes of detecting the earliest neovascular networks possible, even if they're not yet exudative. Knowing that patients that have neovascularization that's non-exudative are greater risk to convert to the exudative form of the disease. And color fundus photography and FAF uh, be getting pretty routinely. Initially, probably watching them, you know, pretty closely between three to six month intervals to kind of see where we're headed. But if it's progressing quickly, it's probably going to be every three months for me. Thank you very much, Carolyn. So Mo, I wanted you to kind of expand on this. Carolyn brought up a good point. We watch our glaucoma patients every three to four months. And it's interesting. Sometimes I don't think we're aggressive enough with following these AMD patients, just like Carolyn said. You see it progressing from the early stage to inter, you know, intermediate stage. What's your thought process? I agree with her. We probably should be following somewhat the glaucoma model where every three to four months. What, what do you think about that? Can you expand on that? So now you, you created a five-headed snake. So let me go like this. AMD is an underdiagnosed disease. This was proven by that paper by Neely and his associate back in 2017 that they published that, you know, they presented patients to both optometrists and comprehensive ophthalmologists and a significant number of these patients who actually had intermediate AMD were, were marked as no AMD. So number one is to make sure and be careful to diagnose it and stage it correct, correctly. So you're not under diagnosing. The one other thing is colleagues have to realize, we all have to realize, this disease, like many other diseases, it takes from zero to early in those first stages may take years for the disease to progress. But once you hit the intermediate AMD patient, then you are a slippery slope. There are a whole bunch of different biomarkers of this disease that might tell you 
what direction this patient goes, you know, additional to genetic markers and all that, but even on imaging on things like fundus autofluorescence, like Carolyn said, uh, OCTA on again, looking at high resolution OCTB, you know, there's a difference of somebody who's got uh, a, a bunch of even intermediate um, drusen versus somebody who's got pseudo, uh, you know, pseudo drusen versus somebody who's now got accumulation of the lipofusion in the RPE, this, uh, you know, drusenoid PEDs, things like that. I mean, those, and the other thing is when you bring these patients back, if you see somebody's OCT constantly changing, then that's a, that's a disease in perhaps higher chance of progression to either neovascular AMD or geographic atrophy, as opposed to somebody that you see them every three months and the scan looks exactly like three months ago and looks exactly like six months ago and looks exactly like nine months ago. But from a follow-up standpoint, as the disease progresses, our surveillance should be tied there. And then we have to also think about things like the, you know, uh, the notals for C home in the intermediate, other technologies that we have at hand to help us monitor these patients. Because Carolyn emphasized this, our goal right now is to catch patients that are either at risk or had de have developed neovascular AMD. And soon we are going to have to recognize patients with geographic atrophy and other progressive issue that hopefully in the near future we have some treatments for. So let me, Carolyn, I'm going to ask a question. Mo, I'd like you to jump in when you can here. Would you, and, and as you just said, you know, it's, we have to look at things in a different way, um, not just one way, but look at it with multimodal in, imaging and so forth. But what would you, would you all, would you agree with this? If someone is in the intermediate stage, do they, should they get an OCTA? Or is it something that should be based off of other things? Should they, depending on what the FAF said, depend, like Mo, what you said, what you're seeing, let's say in the uh, outer retina and so forth. Um, do you think that everyone, you know, I just want you to like talk about, do you think that everyone wants and I couldn't say it any better, you have to stage the disease properly. But once they are staged intermediate, do you think OCTA is a must or is it other things that are involved before you do the OCT? Yeah, so for me, I think it's a very high value. I'd at least say it that way. Um, and of higher value, if you are seeing signs on just a regular structural OCT that are suggestive of possible early neovascular disease. Like if I'm seeing a shallow, irregular contour pigment epithelial detachment, even if there's no fluid or there's no blood around it, I might suspect that, oh, there's neovascularization in there. And I'm only gonna really be able to image that with OCT and geography, not just re regular structural OCT. I mean, I think you know, as we discussed earlier too, the goal is, you know, when you're in the intermediate stage, the goal is to catch the earliest conversion to the exudative or neovascular form possible. And doing OCT and geography is really going to help facilitate that. So this must issue it becomes a sort of, first of all, there's a standard of care. So I don't think OCT has become standard of care. But the must issue for Carolyn and I and you is a must because we have an OCTA in our clinics and our facilities. But it's not a must if you don't have the OCTA. You know, so some of those selections are based on what you got 
at hand. I myself, in our mother clinic, I have an OCTA, but in the satellite clinic I was today, I don't have OCTA there. So I have to rely more on what I got as far as technology available at the time. If I'm watching, if I'm seeing a patient in a tent, then I'd rely on my 90 adapter more than an OCT. So you have to rely on things. But the point is, if you, if you smell the smoke, rather than waiting until you see the fire, if you're not sure, go ahead and refer the patient. There is no fault in referring a patient earlier than later. If the patient comes in, many of these patients are not symptomatic until you bring some issues up with them. Are you having any problems? Are you anything changing? And then again, most of our colleagues that we, we talk to at meetings now have OCT. And OCT is a very good instrument. Almost all of our colleagues have color fundus photography. You know, in, in some of these stages, color fundus photograph may not catch it, but if you go to a red-free, if you have IR, if you have SLOs are sometimes better to catch this stuff as opposed to the white flash. So use your technology, but also we are doctors. Use your 90 adapter lens. Take a closer look. Like Carolyn said, look to see if there is any blood in the field that you're, you're looking at. You know, Look to see if there's pigment migration and pigment abnormalities. Things that would, again, give us the you know, smelling the smoke, basically. But don't wait for the fire. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Nicely said. All right, I just want to get... We're, we're, we will transition into a geographic atrophy case here in a second, but I want to get your input on something just what your gut feeling says, maybe what some of the literature says. I wanted to know, before we get into a geographic atrophy patient, what is your thought process on genetic testing for that patient? And because some of these patients, maybe many of them come in with their children and they're sitting in the back of the exam room and they say, doctor, what do you think about me getting genetically tested? Or you told me I don't have any signs, but should I get you know tested? What what we'll start with Carolyn, but what are your thought processes on genetic testing for this, let's say, umbrella disease? Yeah, I personally do not do genetic testing, um, in part because I'm, you know, not at liberty to do so in the um, practice setting that I'm in. So I think uh, Mo's probably more qualified to answer that question than I am. So for AMD, we don't do genetic testing either. In fact, the Academy of Ophthalmology is still not recommending genetic testing for age-related macular degeneration. And there are a whole host of reasons not to. And then there, there are these folks that go to this direct-to-consumer type genetic testing. And you know, even the American uh, Academy of Ophthalmology recommends not to have patients go to this direct-to-consumer testing stuff because part of it, although there are new regulations and all that, is not protected information. And God knows you know, what message the patients get. There are genetic testing available for patients who really, really want to know. But as we all know, many people who have genetic markers for AMD don't go on to ever develop AMD. So I myself, why would I want to create, you know, some sort of anxiety to myself thinking that I have the gene but never develop the disease? 
know, to me, paying attention again to what we have available in examination and, and technology testing, imaging gives us, you know, a much more detailed sign. Look at the, the thickness of the choroid. A lot of AMD patients' choroids are thinner than the average choroidal sign. Look at, again, the biomarkers that tell us a patient may have AMD. One of the most effective things you can tell the children of patients who have AMD, don't smoke. Take care of your comorbidities. If you think you have sleep apnea, go get a sleep lab check. Use your CPAP. Take care of your cholesterol. Take care of your blood pressure. Those type of things that affect the system as a whole. You know? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, and I agree with both of you. It's very interesting what you're talking about here because we tend to focus with the genetic testing, we tend to focus on the gene itself, but we do know from other diseases and we know from longevity studies and so forth, epigenetics plays a huge role in all of this. And the epigenetic factors, whether it's methylation or acetylation, it's interesting because of the fact that, like you just said, Mo, a lot of these are epigenetic factors. So yeah, that's interesting and I do agree. So now, if you don't mind, let's jump in you know, to a, a another patient, let's say, the first individual, remember, we talked about had just drusen and other maybe findings um, that showed early to intermediate. Now let's talk about geographic atrophy. And we'll use this as another patient. So Carolyn, if you don't mind, now you have a patient that has geographic atrophy and, it, and you can talk about if it's central versus off-centered axis and so forth. What would you do here any different? versus that first patient we brought up? Sure, um, I think it very much depends on whether it's already central involved in both eyes and what the visual acuity is. You know, if it's a patient who's already like 2200 in both eyes from central geographic atrophy, I don't think that anything is gonna benefit that patient very much at that point, because they've already lost so much vision. I think we need to draw our attention to those patients, well, other than low vision referral, excuse me. I think that's very appropriate. But I think us on like sort of the medical side of things need to draw our attention towards patients that especially have extra foveal geographic atrophy in at least one eye that hasn't yet invaded the center part of the vision. Um, and especially if it's progressing, if it's a patient that's demonstrated that the geographic atrophy is progressing over time, we may in the future have some sort of intervention that we could do to slow that progression. And I think some of the best ways to detect geographic atrophy are gonna be OCT and fundus autofluorescence, especially OCT to detect pre or nascent geographic atrophy, um, but then fundus autofluorescence to kind of uh, assess for progression over time once it's already developed. Good, thank you. Well, you wanna to add to that? Well, also bear in mind, people who have GA can develop neovascular AMD and patients who have neovascular AMD can develop GA. So these two coexist together. So What's really sad is I have a lot of patients that even are getting treated in the fellow eye for neovascular AMD in our practice, seeing the progression nature of this disease, you know, and now that we are paying more attention to it because, you know, we are involved in clinical trials or we are hoping for a future uh, coming soon is the fact that we see this, you know, I go through the IR photo, for instance, of the serial OCTs we've done on these patients and see is like, you know, when my bald spot went to a whole 
you know, bald head, basically. <laughs> One of the other thing about geographic atrophy, Snellen acuity is not a good marker to know how the patient is doing, because you could have somebody who's got really significant GA and still see 2020. Somebody can see a 2020 optotype and not be able to see the 2200. So we need to pay attention to the visual function and how the patient is suffering. How is it affecting their life? And it's affecting a lot of people's lives themselves, not being able to drive, you know, not to have, have an, you know, I asked one of my patients who get treated for neovascular AMD and the other one who's got progressive GA. I said, tell me one of the things that's hard to do. She said, I can't cook anymore. I cannot cut carrots anymore. You know, I'm worried about cutting my fingers. And so this really, it, it brings it home. This stuff does affect our patients. We all know that. Yeah, and Carolyn, I think you brought up you're right, it's exactly right, Mo. You brought this up earlier, low vision. Do you both feel, both with that first patient with the Drews, Drusen and, and the geographic atrophy patient that we're talking now, do you feel that uh, low vision should be, be there earlier? Because I notice sometimes low vision, they don't get the patient to low vision until they've got this large discoform scar and so forth in, in one form of the disease. But like Mo just said, visual acuity is not the best indicator sometimes of what's really going on, right? We need to look at more visual function. So I guess would you both recommend or talk a little bit about when do you feel that that person should go to low vision? Absolutely. Low vision yeah. service. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, once a patient hits from a visual acuity standpoint, 2040 or worse, then I would definitely have a conversation with the patient. But if, if in the history, I feel like they're already having, you know, difficulty with uh, activities of daily living or it's affecting their life in some way, I might even refer a patient in the intermediate um, non-exudative stage, depending on their scenario and how I feel they're functioning and could we do better for them? And a lot of the times the answer is yes. And bringing up low vision early on in the course of a conversation, I think is much better than waiting to the end. I couldn't agree more. And um, it's so much more than acuity, like contrast sensitivity you know, dark adaptation, all those things are affected in early macular degeneration. One of the, the things, yeah, go ahead, Bob. The barriers to low vision, one is the, in most cases, it doesn't have insurance coverage. So patients are out of pocket. In a disease where it's progressive, you know, it's like the shoe size of a person keeps changing. So, uh, and then the other thing is for those of us who refer to low vision, not to give this idea to the patient, you're going for a cure over here to over heighten the patient's expectation because then you're, you know, you're putting the patient in another doctor's hand who's gonna have a difficult time, you know, matching that expectation, yeah. But there is always place for low, low vision rehabilitation. But in the last five minutes, guys, I just want basic two questions here. We'll try to, you know, even it out. What, what's your feelings, if you could just make a few comments, both of you, on the AREDS2 formula and any additional supplementation, coenzyme Q10, uh, whatever other things, you know, that you want to add. Carolyn, is there anything you'd like to state about the AREDS2 and so forth and supplementation other? So I would recommend AREDS2 supplements once a patient is in the intermediate non-exudative stage uh, and beyond that is that has, you know, reasonably good vision that could be spared. Um, with regards to additional supplementation, I usually don't recommend um, anything else. 
perhaps omega-3s, um, but dietary modifications, stop smoking. I mean, I think all those things are really important. I would preference an AREDS 2 supplement um, that had a lower uh, dosage of zinc, like 40 milligrams total daily would be preferred over 80 milligrams daily, um, but it's difficult to come by, it would seem. So in addition to AREDS 2, one of the other things I tell patients, whether the AMD diabetic patient, think what's heart healthy because people understand that. You know, in your diet, in, in addition to adding the leafy green vegetables, which I live in the South, leafy green vegetables means spinach with a lot of like ham hog and, you know, fatty stuff. And so you have to be careful, but you know, when the patients say, doc, what about eating and all that? It's like, what, what how do you think your heart would, whatever you do for your heart to benefit, you talk about CoQ10, is one of the things is good for your heart. So if it's good for your heart, it's good for your eye. And this old wife's tale of should I eat more carrots? No, don't eat more carrots, but eat some carrots. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, guys, and one final thing, and then we'll wrap it up. And this has been really uh, interesting and, and very educational. My last thing is this, you know, we, we did these cases, we did the, you know, we gave a broad view of, of what could be presenting in our office. But when we look at geographic atrophy, you know, the more research that's put into it, we are seeing that the complement system, both in the innate and the adaptive acquired, you know, is coming together. And, and, and we've seen how in that complement formation of the membrane attack complex and so forth. Oh, and we're not going to be specific here. We're not going to do molecular biology. But I'm just curious, either one of you, do you want to make any comment on how we're seeing how we this disease, at least some of it, is a subacute inflammation that's activated either by something externally or a genetic complement factor H? Do you guys want to make any comments on that? Either so one. Complement system is at work all the time in our body. It's a part of our immune innate immune system. So sometimes jokingly I say it's like a vacuum cleaner that's trying to clean up the carpet but the motor is overactive now and is sucking your carpet in. So in AMD, it's been proven that the complement factor is overacting and that overaction is what causes the, you know, the membrane attack complex and the inflammasomes and the inflammatory, uh, you know, pro-inflammatory proteins to come and cause damage to the tissue. So now by suppressing it, hopefully you can delay or slow down the progression of the GA. And that's the premise behind those uh, pharmaceutical companies that are trying to come up with the complement uh, factor. Inhibitors, yeah. Carolyn, you wanna add anything or? Uh, no, I just feel like it's a really exciting time that we're actually gonna hopefully, you know, pretty soon here have something to potentially offer our patients with geographic atrophy to at least slow down the progression of disease. By no means does it halt it, but um, something's better than nothing, I think. Well, Mo and Carolyn, thank you so much for your time. I had uh, a good time speaking to you here and uh, we, we, we had a good 25 minutes to, to get you know, some information out there. And I'm honored because I respect both of you. Um, I'm, I'm honored to have to do this, you know, this podcast with you and uh, you know, I appreciate you taking the time to do this and, and giving us not only your educational experience, but, you know, as time goes on, you have the wisdom 
to say, hey, I see this happening and this happening and so forth. So, um, you know, I really appreciate, you know, you taking the time to do this. So to, to both of you, thank you. Thank you. The feeling mutual. It was Absolutely. Wonderful. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, guys.